Welcome to episode 33 of the Slow Speed Society podcast. As always, I am Paul with my other co-host Fabian. Hi Fabian. Uh, hi. <laughs> <laughs> Today we'll be talking about Chinelli's history. It's long and deep history. It's very interesting. Lots of details. It's very, very, very big topic there's a lot of stuff to talk about we'll be tackling that today so i I spent like quite a bit of time just like organizing the notes anyway like paul researched it all but before that if you want to hear more about gangsta v4 track arriving in europe america classics new fatty gravel tires or riding fixed up mountains with lale wilcox make sure to check out the pre-show yes you can access the extended conversation at patreon.com slash slowspinstyle podcast or by subscribing directly on apple podcasts back to the main show Exactly. Back to the main show, but just before the main show, yes. So just before we start, I just want to remind everyone that Chrome gave us a 15% off coupon uh, of their footwear. The card is SlowSpinSociety15, all caps. And it's really nice of them to give us that kind of discount for the community. Uh, If you want to check everything on the new Chrome SBD shoes and more, make sure to check last week's episode, episode 32. Now we can go on to the main show. It is a pretty dense episode, so yeah, uh, be focused. <laughs> or don't, and just listen listen to quick anecdotes here and there. No, sit down, listen, take notes, and make sure to be prepared for next week's test. <laughs> Everything started with Shino Chanelli. Born in 1916, he's the son of a family of 10 children uh, and grew up near Florence. His interest in bikes started as at a really young age. Uh, he really wanted to ride for a living, but his family was fairly poor and it was just not possible. And even at some point, he had to leave his study and look for a job. So in 1930, when he was only 14 years old, Chino started working as a helper in a doctor's office. But still, it was always super careful to not say around him that he wanted to become a pro cyclist because it was just afraid that people will make fun of him. (laughs) Uh, He was really admiring, though, his brothers, Arrigo and Giotto. I don't know if I have those names right, right? Like the Italian accent is not my thing. So (laughs) Arrigo and Giotto, uh, who both were riding bikes already yeah they're like his older brothers that's the influence right yeah so one day while shinobu was riding a bike that was clearly too big for him uh he crossed the pass of a car the usual like dirty gravelly roads of around florence he made like a clumsy maneuver lose control of his bike and he crashed into the car the driver was actually super nice. He checked on Chino. Everything was right, like no no big injuries or anything. Told him to be more careful next time and he gave him money to repair the bikes. He gave him so much money, like a very, very generous amount at the time that he had enough money for repairing the bike, but also buying himself his own bike. And that's... The beginning, right, of our story. <laughs> I wonder if the guy in the car knows what he kind of did for him. Because, like, to him, he was just a kid with a shitty bike, and then he gave him some money to repair a bike, but now he has a new bike, and, you know, it, I mean, it, like, kind of started everything, more or less. Yeah, it's the, how the universe works in some ways. Like, know? if he went the other way around and was like, oh, you have to pay me... I don't have any money. And he takes the bike to pay for the damages. And then he will... Chino will never have a bike, probably. Huh. We'll never know. No. What if? What if? Episode 34. What if? But anyway. <laughs> eventually, so Chino at 14, he started working. But eventually, he stopped working at the doctor's office. Great, right? Child labor. He got a new <laughs> job in a small publishing house. Where like, a, like a book publisher. And he became more educated and cultured because he was... Well, yeah, his boss liked him and gave him book recommendations and Gino was reading those books. 
And the boss also figured out that Gino loved cycling and, and he wanted to eventually become a pro cyclist. So the boss encouraged Gino, Gino's sporting aspirations. So now that Gino was more passionate than ever about riding, he began, began like his brothers to take part in some amateur races. And even from the very start, he was showing very good results. Even though he's not like a professionally trained or even like amateur trained cyclist, he was already showing some potential from the, from the very start. Yeah. And then he continues riding for the like next following years. And seven years later, so in 1937, the publisher changed its management structures. Chino was required as a full-time worker now. Uh, so that would mean no more time for sports aspiration and commitments. It was only for the publishing house. So at 21 years old, Chino was into a crossroad. Option one, he continues his career at a publisher and completely gives up on professional cycling. Option two, uh, he quit his job and he pursued a potential career as a professional cyclist, but he loses his salary and he starts everything without money, without a job, without sponsors, like nothing, right? No backup. No backup, exactly. And he's a passionate man. <laughs> so what he do? He quit. He quit and he's like, yeah, fuck that. And only one year later in 1938, He's already riding as a professional cyclist for Team Fresh's at the time. He raced a few years also for Bianchi and Benotto. And he had like, in his career, like a few good victories under his belt. Uh, for example, the Giro del Apennino, the Giro del Lombardia, the Giro di Campania, and a few others. Ah, my favorite Italian dishes. <laughs> 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 but anyway, besides these like, victories, which were obviously a very big deal for him as, you know, like a new new name, new starter in the scene, his number one pride and joy and achievement was winning the Milan San Remo in 1943. Now, this race is also called the Spring Classic or La Classicima, if I say that right. Okay, anyway, yeah. just for disclosure, we're not going to pronounce anything right. So everything's going to sound, gonna sound really fucked up. But anyway, it's an <laughs> annual race between Milan and San Remo in northwest Italy. It's a total of 298 kilometers or 185 miles, 185.2 miles. And it's the longest professional one-day race in modern cycling, even today still. One-day race, this being the key word. So it's 300Ks in one day. Yeah, and at that time with their bikes, holy shit. And this is the first major classic race of the season, first held in 1907. It's usually held, like, as a tradition on the third Saturday of March. So whatever num number date it is, it's normally on the third Saturday of March. And it's, it's considered to be the first of the five monuments of cycling. And these are, like, the big events, such as the Tour of the Fla Like, the other monuments of cycling are the Tour of Flanders, Paris, Paris, Paris Roubaix. Roubaix, right? Yeah, Paris Roubaix. Yeah. Liege, Bastogne, Liege. And the Tour of Lombardy. <laughs> so, well, yeah, the other one is in Flanders, so that's Belgium. The other one is Paris, Roubaix, France. And the other one is Belgium again. And then Italy. So two of the five are in Italy. Sounds cool. Yeah. And it's considered to be one of the most prestigious one-day events in cycling. And, of course, our main man, Eddie Merckx, has won this seven times. Seven times he's won this 300-kilometer race. One-day race. That guy was just insane. I mean, he's still alive, but... Yeah. Yeah. We should have just, like... It would have been a much nicer, like, Disney movie a quick fact if it was, like... And you know who won seven times? Of course, none other than Gino Cinelli. But no, it's some Belgian guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, Hedy Merckson was, like, an insane dude. And Monster and everything. Yeah, that race, those 300Ks... That race is not easy because it's not 300 kilometers flat, you know? No, exactly. Well, it was the late 30s when Shino started racing as a pro, and he constantly had mechanical issues. Not only him, but basically everyone in the field. Um, the first derailers were slowly adopted in 1937. But you'll have to wait until... 1959, when Campagnolo introduced its 
Grand Sport refined cable, cable operated parallelogram rear derailleur, meaning it's like the derailleur we have today, or we don't, depends on what you ride. But Fixed it's gear. like <laughs> <laughs> it's like the same approach, right? Same system. Just a quick fact, but it was reported that between 1877 and 1906, so a full-blown 30 years. In London, just in London, there were 750 patents for variable speed gearing. However, literally none of them weren't commercially desirable and viable. So a lot of ideas, but until Campagnolo had its Grand Sport cable parallelogram rear derailleur thing, the rest was just not worth it. So, I guess thank you, Campagnolo. For taking the you risk. made our life easier. <laughs> <laughs> but gears aside, um, the frames at the time were pretty soft and flexible, and the basic bike fit and bike geometry is nothing like we know today. So, Shino became pretty interested in bike technologies and everything, and he was saying... There is probably a way to solve all the mechanical failures me and my colleagues while have racing. Guys, this is, you know, we had to work really hard to get this limited, exclusive <laughs> copy of him talking back then. This authentic Chino Ginelli talking right there. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah, so while Shino was on the road as a professional cyclist and always looking around and searching for new ideas, his brother Giotto was also passionate about mechanics and he started his own production of handlebars and stem in the 40s, 1940. Uh, he and Arrigo, his other brother, right, uh, they founded Cicli Giotto Cinelli in Florence. In 1944, Cino decided to retire from competition, so he was a professional cyclist, or rather from the start, an amateur cyclist and professional cyclist for six years. It which sounds, is pretty short. Which it sounds pretty short, but if you think about the stuff they had to go through back then, if it's stuff like the Milan San Remo every year, you know, like it, six years can be very long back then. That shit would beat you up pretty hard. Yeah. And a quick fact, in 1943, Giro d'Italia was also called Giro di Guerra, Tour of War. He ranked sixth at the 1943 Giro d'Italia during wartime. So this was during the Second World War. And... As a man at his age, he was uh, a soldier, like on, on, like formally, officially a soldier. But because he was selected for the national team in Italy, he was exempt from the war and was able to like professionally train and compete during wartime. Yeah, during the World War Two. So yeah. in the end, maybe if we go all the way back. The accident he had with the car, the guy driving, who gave him enough money to buy a nice bike to get him into cycling to make him a professional cyclist might have saved his life because he didn't have to go to war. Oh my god. Oh my god, this could be like a movie. <laughs> wow. 12 episode anime. Nani? Shiniri? Tenandesu ka? And so Chino wants to dedicate his life to making better bikes because as we said, he was interested in bike technology and he followed his brother Giotto's working and um, yeah, working and uh, practice in development of parts. And in 1944, he founded Cinelli and C, a marketing and sales company. And with this, he moves from Florence or around Florence to Milan. And only two years later, in 1946, Chino is already 30 years old. And at that time, well, he knows all the main players in cycling, right? Due to his cycling career and his marketing role in his brother's company. So he knew companies, organizations, technic technicians, and of course, like cyclists and team managers, everything basically. And he also had some pretty, pretty cool friends. For example, none other than Gino Bartali, winner of two Tour de France with 12 individual stages, three Giro d'Italia, Milan San Remo, Tour de Suisse, and much, much more victories under his belt. The guy was a monster. So, that was one of his friends. Really chill, okay. <laughs> cool flex. <laughs> <laughs> 
And another of his run was Fausto Copy. Also, legendary cyclist of the same era. Uh, you might know him as the few track frame set with his name on it. And together, so Shino, Fausto, and Gino, <laughs> they decided together to create the ACCPI. Okay, wait for it. The Associazione Corridori Ciclisti Professionisti Italiani. Like Minecraft which language. translates into <laughs> the Association of Professional Italian Cyclist Riders. Big and long name. They basically created the UCI, but for Italia. They still exist today. It's a big deal back then, 1946. So Cinelli and C, um, Chino's own marketing and sales company, was the first Italian company specialized in the distribution of accessories for racing bikes. And they produced also handlebars and stems like with with Giotto, his brother, of course. Yeah. In May 1946, the advertisement for the imminent start of the sale of Cinelli frames, so this is when Cinelli actually has his own frames, appeared in the Gazzetta dello Sport, the greatest Italian sports newspaper at the time. So, yeah, Cinelli was able to use his connections and own charismatic skills to get Cinelli in the biggest sport magazine of Italy at the time. Yeah, and they went from stem and handlebars to actual bikes and frames, right? Yeah. And for that, so in 1947, uh, Shino hired Luigi Valsassina. So he was the frame builder at the Bianchi Racing Department when Shino was racing for Bianchi, right? Yeah. And he built frames for Shino, but also for Fusto Copy. Like, it was a great frame builder. The guy knew his shit. Uh, he knew what he was doing. So he hired him, and Luigi was the only one with really, really small help of a few workers. He was the only one responsible for the entire production of Chinelli frames. The average production in the first year was about 250 pieces per year, included frames and bike, because they were also making like a complete bike on orders. Each and every frame at that time was numbered because production was super, super limited. Chinelli debuted at the very prestigious Cycle and Motorcycle Fair in Milan on November 29th, 1947. They had a stand inside the Palace of Art, was quite like a, a not shy, but I would say simple display. Only six bikes. Um, and a complete series of handlebars and stem on display. So, like, pretty sober, pretty subtle. But that was their first official debut as not only accessories, but also bikes and frames. Yeah. And do you guys remember how Chino first entered his brother's company? Cicli Giotto Cinelli. Two brothers, so the two brothers, Arrigo and Giotto, they sold their shares in the company to Chino. So now Chino is the sole like, owner and the new head of Cinelli. He shipped the rest of the machinery from the company from Florence to Milan. So now his own company, the Cinelli NC and Cicli Giotto Cinelli, they're both in Milan and I guess they're one, one thing now, basically. And 1948 is the first year of Cinelli as we all know it today. The new name and the new logo. Now it's just Cinelli. Arrigo, his one brother, Chino's one brother, is now producing some motorcycle parts, while Giotto, his other brother, is very successful in the plastic injection molding company called Electroplast, owned by his father-in-law. The Chino Chinelli badge that we all know features a night helmet, which is inspired by a helmet his father used to have at home, and on the one side is a red lily, the symbol of Chino's native Florence, while on the other side is a green snake, the symbol of Milan. These are the two cities where he gets a lot of influence from. Ah, Italians. So much meaning into everything. Yeah, snakes and flowers and shit. Shino <laughs> <laughs> um, was married to Hedy Matter. Uh, she was Swiss and she spoke Italian, German, French and English fluently. Uh, which is completely crazy for, what, 1950? Sounds like us. 
<laughs> she's largely responsible for Sinelli's success outside of Italy because she was maintaining the entire foreign market and clients all by herself. She met with Sino while he was racing in Switzerland. And her dad was not easy on our favorite racer. He was always telling him, like, so what's going to be your real job, right? And one day, Chino was at the table and he answered, I am an entrepreneur. I am an influencer. <laughs> It's a real job. <laughs> <laughs> and only then, the engagement with Hedy was made official. So, cyclist? Nah, not a real job. If you're entrepreneur, then it works. Businessman, risk taker. Ah, oh, yes, you can have my girl, my my daughter now. <laughs> And... Take it. Never come back. <laughs> In 1951, Ginelli is working on the new special Corsa frame, designed for smooth roads, full sloping fork crown with internal lugs. Fork blades are shorter, stiffer, and with oval sections to increase aerodynamics. The seat post has a new release system, and the bottom bracket shell, the seat lug, and the fork crown are sand cast by George Fisher in Switzerland. The main tubes are made by Reynolds 531, and fork blades, seat stays, and chain stays are made by Columbus. Yeah, and when Fabian is selling like, the seat post as a new release system, we're talking about that log that you can find, you could find first on Cinelli Super Corsa, but it's what now we call the fastback log. It's like Super, super nice. Uh, really, really cool log. And yeah, I love I love that. It's usually like really, really nice touch, either on Super Corsars or NGS frames. It's a pretty cool log. So Valsacina, the frame builder, remember him, right? Was not totally in agreement with Chino on the project, right? The Super Corsa project. I mean, the special Corsa at the time. <laughs> But... It changed his mind when uh, the bike was finished and it surpassed his expectations. Shino wanted something steeper and lighter. And it's at that moment that you see uh, some features like Shinelli's signature, signature lugs. So including that fastback suit lug I was talking before. That's it. The special Corsa now enter into production without... Any modification from the prototype, it was already perfect from the get-go. And it's still made to this day, you can still order um, a special Corsa, aka Super Corsa, today. I mean, it's not going to be exactly the same because they refined it with years, but it's it's an awesome bike. And it's a beautiful bike. Uh, I've seen one in real life, I've, I've owned one uh, that I've never built, but yeah, just a frame set and... Holy shit, those are beautiful. As Fabian was telling before, it features a chrome fork, the well-known Malaguti lugs, so those are like the Sinelli lugs, right? Sinelli crust decal on the seat tube, and a silver-plated Sinelli crest plate on the head tube for the premium version. They already had a premium version at the time. <laughs> yeah, and they, they still look... They, I'm sure they look good back then, they look even better now, probably. Yeah, now I'm, I'm a big fan of like Cinelli Super Corsas, but with modern parts. Yeah, components. I was thinking like in like either like the the red or the laser color, and you have like yeah, nice yeah, like yeah. carbon ribs and they, everything. They have also like a really really nice kind of bronzy color, uh, which looks super good, and oh. the white one is nice too. Yeah, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> and... I'm not a big fan of the green and yellow one. No, green, green is just ugly color, like the other uh, Chinelli. I, I, would I would just have to say, like, it's not the right green, but the yellow is just plain ugly. I would, I would more, I'm more likely to take the yellow one than the green one, to be honest. Really? Yeah. Have you ever seen, like, a yellow Super Corsa, though? I've never seen a Super Corsa, ever. <laughs> it's nasty. <laughs> it's like a Lamborghini. Uh, no, it's not the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Missing two wheels, right? Yeah. What is Cinelli without the glorious white dove usually found on the seat tube? Of course, this is due Cinelli getting closer to Angela Luigi Colombo in the 1950s. Colombo is the head of Columbus Tubing, founded in 1919, and the white dove is their symbol. Gino Cinelli was so good at selling his bikes and components that Colombo wanted him as worldwide, worldwide sales representative for Columbus Tubing. Yeah, and 
Shinali's bike started using Columbus tubing for fork blades and stays that we we talked about that earlier with like the Super Corsa. But both company helping each other, they were growing quite fast. And between 1955 and 1959, together they supplied the Italian national track team. Damn, from from being pro cyclist, amateur cyclist, pro cyclist to now supplying the national track team, frankly. And it's like the best combo ever. Like, oh, I have a bike factory. Oh, I have a tubing factory. Yo, you want to work together? Oh, both our last names start with a C. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. And in 1958, Ginelli acquired Binda Toastrafts, which is, was which was invented by the mechanic of the champion, Ugo Bianchi. These were further improved by his son, Dino. These became a market leader due to the leather quality and the stainless steel buckle body, and it dominated the, the market until the introduction of quick release in, yeah, 30 years later, 1988. Yeah. And in 1959, Cinelli de- developed the first plastic-bodied saddle with the company Niedu. These were, um, these were called Unicator because, unfortunately, Unica was already patented. These are stiffer, lighter, and more comfortable than anything else available at the time. And of course, plastic body saddled. He worked with Giotto, his brother, who was in the plastic molding injection industry. Yeah. So during like the 50s, yeah, late 50s, early 60s, Chinelli worked with Columbus already and the, the bike market, the frame market was good, you know, like it was just doing good. And so they started creating all the stuff so like the the straps and the unicator saddle they most of the time they were partnering with someone that knew better what they were doing and they were like buying the design and selling under Cinelli. but yeah Shino Cinelli went full businessman mode basically in the 1960 olympics Cinelli and Campagnolo they shared a stand to advertise the product and you would be surprised that two brands uh, share a stand, but they were more friend than anything else. They were never really competing because they had to collaborate on many, many projects. Campagnolo was not making any frames and Cellini was not making group sets. So yeah, they were always collaborating, so they were friends. And that's why in 1961, uh, Campagnolo helped Cinelli produce the bivalent hubs. And that's something I learned while um, looking and searching for facts in this podcast. Those are crazy. Those are like out of this world. So it's a really, really special hub where the free hub is attached to the bike. So if you switch your rear wheel, your cassette will still be attached to your bike. So it's way faster to change your wheel, right? Especially since at the time it was still tubular tires that were dominating everywhere. But because your cassette is uh, attached to the bike, you can actually switch the front and rear wheel. They, they're swappable, you know? And even if it was like, a super super good idea the project was abandoned in the late 60s but if you have a second go on youtube and there's a guy that made a full video on bivalent hubs or bivalent hubs and they're yeah they're just crazy they were technically the first ever through axle hub back in 1961 which is pretty crazy too unintentional or intentional innovation right yeah no i think like those hubs were crazy just the yep. mere fact that you can switch your rear and front wheel and they will still work crazy yeah in 1963 Ginelli replaced reynolds 531 tubing used for the main tubes of their frames with columbus sl tubing from 1963 on Ginelli almost used exclusively columbus tubing and this makes sense as they worked on a bunch of projects together and are almost officially partners right in the company yeah and we're bros yeah, bros. <laughs> in 1963, Chino uh, Cinelli was kind of dabbling in the world of aluminum handlebars and stems. 
This was fairly new technology at the time, but Chino still recommended steel parts for track use. And in the following years, Ginelli managed to equip different teams for the Olympics, so not just the Italian ones. And this I think they equipped like the Mexicans once even. Wow. Really spreading out there. Yeah. And at the end of the 1960s, Chinelli was producing between 600 and 700 frames a year. And this might not sound like a lot nowadays, but this is up from 250 just 15 years earlier. And back then, that's a big step up, of course. Well, so they, while they were producing 600 to 700 frames a year, they were simultaneously launching the first ever quick release pedal. And this might, this might be, um, Known to some of you, of course, the M71. Today, they're known as the suicide pedal or death pedals, and they're named this way because to clip out of them, even after you're already clipped in, you have to reach down with your hand and undo a mechanism. So you cannot just twist your, your foot or, or your leg to clip out, and so if you crash, you cannot, you will, obviously you cannot unclip, but they're made in such a way that if you do fall on your side and like the mechanism touches the ground, it should unclip. But then that's already when you're in the ground on the ground, of course. <laughs> so so yeah. ideally, you'd be going slow, and then you reach down, you do it yourself. And these are they have like a sled type platform made of chrome plated steel and an aluminum mounted plate fixed to the shoe. And so far, of them, there have been four generations of the pedals. And most of the differences are regarding the material choices across the generations. For example, the second generation of M71s had a base of aluminum rather than chrome-plated steel, and the plate in the shoes were plastic rather than aluminum. Yeah, like the like the SPDs, SLs we know today. Yeah. So let's come back on the special Corsage just a little bit. So it was tweaked uh, along the years, right? They removed the eyelets for the fenders. And they added Campagnolo guides um, in the BB shell. So Silly was now a real race bike company. They had no time for city bikes anymore. And the special Corsa was their like flagship. It was the thing, right? Yeah. Um, but why special Corsa and not Super Corsa as we all know today? Uh, it is the same bike, okay? And... <laughs> It comes from an actually pretty funny mistake. Back in the days, uh, the printer for the label mistook the abbreviation SC model uh, that was on the invoice for Special Corsa instead of Super Corsa. And they just went with it. They're like, we have no time. <laughs> and they just printed Special Corsa everywhere before rectifying it um, later in like the 70s. So the Super Corsa is the Special Corsa, the same bike. Um, but in 1975, Shino designed a new bike called the Ridotto. <laughs> or the Ridotto. <laughs> close. <laughs> yeah, very close. 26 inch wheel front and back, very long crank arms. And the claim was being ideal for road bike use with higher speed. With the smaller wheels and longer crank, it would provide a better leverage. There's only a few of those around. It didn't have much success. I guess people didn't really want it to switch again from 700 to 26 inch. And it was making for a pretty, pretty funny bike, uh, even for a normal size, right? Because you have that giant head tube and 26 inch wheel. So basically... Every bike out there looks like it's a size 62. Yeah, and like at the time, they they already had the Super Corsa, so there's not much reason to get the Ridotto, to be honest. Yeah, the Ridotto was supposed to be like not an evolution, but an alternative. Mm. But yeah, it never, it, never, it never got traction. Yeah. And in 1977, so almost 30 years later, since Chino started with everything, Chino considered retiring from the business side of things. And at this time, Antonio Colombo saw the technical perfection of Cinelli products and he was in love with it. He was fascinated by the, the technical perfection and he wanted to take over the company and keep offering these technically perfect products to the public using his designs. And that's when Antonio Colombo took over. I mean, at once, but he took over the company. And as a reminder, Sinelli's bike were extremely expensive, 
So they were designed for pros, you know, like I told earlier that they were full race bike mode. They were designed for pros and not for the public. And Antonio Colombo uh, is an interesting persona. He is in love with modern art. And yeah, he wanted to offer uh, the, that technical perfection to the public, but using design and art as like um, a marketing point, you know? So only one year later in 1978, Antonio joined Nelly as the main shareholder and he became like the official successor of Shino Shinelli. As I was telling, Antonio was a fan of modern art. And in 1979, he commissioned Italo Lupi to design the new Shinelli logo. Italo Lupi, he previously worked and designed the logo for Prada, Fiorucci, and the Turin Olympic logo. And yeah, that's that's in 1979 that the new Shinelli logo is born. And it's the logo that we all know, right? Uh, it's that winged C. So it's one of the first logo to differ from the traditional crest or headbutt style that everybody was using at the, start, at the time. It's a standard bold typeface with modified spacing. It has that iconic effect that we all know. The winged C is inspired by 1950s British motorcycle brand graphic art. And the colors within the wing, the orange, red, milled green and yellow was a subtle reminder to the old logo. The flowers and the snake and yeah, all that stuff. And over the next 30 years, Colombo introduced highly contemporary, bold and playful design to Chinelli's products. And I'm sure he got much of his inspiration from the modern art that he loves to consume and visit across the world. And by doing this, he managed to connect the competitive side of cycling with his passion for design and, and yeah, design and lifestyle products and everything around him. Colombo managed to design the Rampencino, which is Europe's first mountain bikes, the unforgettable laser frame series, Ultra Stems, Integralter, Gramo, and many more products that we all know and look for today. Yeah. And as Fabian just told you, he is part responsible for the Chanel laser, which is might which might be one of the most thought after track bike of all time, even road bike. But what you probably don't know is that the laser started with a BMX. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but the CMX to be more precise, it was Cinelli's only attempt, only and first attempt at an ultra-light BMX. Thin Columbus tubing reinforced with gusset plates. You know where I'm going, right? Mm. It was designed and created by Andrea Pesenti, the frame builder who stood out due for his TIG welding technique. And he worked on the CMX so well that Colombo contracted Pesenti with the laser project. And in 1980, Colombo was in Japan to visit a very important exhibition. And while he was busy studying research on the first French aerodynamic bicycles, he had this sudden realization and idea that popped in his head from these studies. And he used a random magazine to draw curves inside the corners of the frame tubes to become more aero. So he, he wasn't at, at an exhibition. He looked at some aerodynamic bicycles and he had like, like a eureka moment. And so he just grabs like random magazine, draws a frame, and then suddenly just draws like little curves on the inside of, of the, the tubes. And that's what like we call... Like the CMX. You like the CMX. And of course, his focus with this was the focus on like a subtle increase in stiffness and aerodynamic efficiency rather than just pure strength. And when he was back in Italy from, from Japan, Colombo talks to Gianni Gabella, a colleague of his, and together they start the laser project with Pesenti the CMX god, who will produce the prototype of the laser that we know today. So in 1981, they presented to the public. The prototype is finished, and during the prestigious bike and motorcycle convention we mentioned earlier, the 47th edition, they do like grandiose integration in the first high-tech store in Milan. So 1981, that's the first time the public get to see the laser. And in 1981 also, Cinelli's marketing director was the former professional track cyclist Luciano Fusarpoli, 
and using his excellent relations, he was able to contact the Italian Cycling Federation for the presentation of the new laser in a more professional atmosphere and for more professional purposes. Maria Brocardo of the Federation acknowledged the laser's potential benefits and ordered four models for the junior national team for the 1983 World Champs in New Zealand. So, yeah, four might not seem that much, but of course, they caught, like we mentioned, Cinelli frames cost a lot, and like even though he acknowledged the potential benefits, it wasn't clear yet. But yeah. these were this was going to be 1983 World Champs in New Zealand would be the first time they see a professional, professional race. Yep. The lasers, the first laser editions, were one of the first aerodynamic frames available, and they were made with Columbus Air drop profile tubes, and nothing is symmetrical on on this on these first editions. Almost every tube is different, with a special purpose in mind. The boxed structures in molybdenum chrome steel were as thin as paper. The sophisticated stifting system completely eliminated the major flexes in the frame. And I think Amy Danger has a picture on her Flickr page or something like that. Um, and yeah, you can see the lug for both chain stays, the bottom bracket, and the down tube. None of the tube is the same. Every tube is different. So they used basically everything they could use at the time. Pacenti's innovative TIG welding, which is now fairly common, we all know TIG welding, Plus the reinforcement, the gussets, right, welded to the lugs on the frame, made for a radical repositioning of the BB shell. The bike was stiffer, it had a shorter wheelbase, and you could place your bottom bracket to your liking, which is now standard in carbon frames because they are like the that bottom bracket shell, bottom bracket lug, carbon part is so big that you can place it basically wherever you want. By the time, it was revolutionary. And in 1991, the Ginelli Laser was the first bike in history to win the Compass d'Oro Award, which is an industrial design award, which can be used for, for cars, for machinery, for anything. But the Ginelli yeah. Laser won this award. And this laser is also, well, not responsible, of course not, but it also won 28 gold medals at the Olympics and World Championships, and it's also currently even on display at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. So even like, it's a it's a great piece of engineering and design, and it has won like medals in the field, but also can be seen as a piece of art in the way that the tubes are shaped and the, the paint job and everything together. And nowadays, there are, well, like throughout the years, there are countless versions of the Chinelli laser, such as the Pursuit, Time Trial, Road, uh, with a 24 inch on the front, with triple tri triangle integrated stem, or with no C-tube, carbon prototype, and even one with a rear suspension system. So all of these are different versions of the same base Chinelli laser. And as such, the Chinelli laser is an icon and will always stay as such. Tell us in the Discord or on the YouTube comments or whatever, what is your favorite laser out of all of these? And please, there are more than just a track, as we just mentioned. Even though most of us will never own one, there's one laser that you will for sure never be able to own, no matter, well, maybe if you had some amount of money, but let's just say you'll never own it. And that's the laser in Antonio Columbus's office. That's the 1985 Chinese laser made for the track cyclist Hans Osterd, uh, at a one hour record attempt. And it's customized by Keith Heron, the artist. So that's one, that one is in Antonio Columbus's office and it's not for sale. It doesn't leave the office. But I'm sure if you had crazy amount of money, he would sell it. But I'm guessing not. <laughs> none of us do. To save the company. Exactly, <laughs> save the company. It was one out of three that were built for the hour record. And Antonius sent it to his friend Keith to customize it and design it with his art style. Yeah, so really no, there's an entire story behind that. Yeah. Just before that, the some of the... Sinelli laser variants that Fabian told us before. Uh, I'm going to put that into the show notes. And yeah, there is like so many of them. They're all different. But about Antonio and his friend Keith Herring, uh, we have to roll back to June 1984 when Salvatore Alla, a well-known gallery owner, inaugurated the first personal exhibition of Keith uh, in Italy. Precisely in Milan. 
our art savvy Antonio Colombo, he visits the exhibition and he decides to buy a particularly large, important piece of work. The gallery owner is like, I don't know that dude. He seems pretty young. <laughs> uh, he's not really in the gallery's target group, but yeah, he verified the guy and Antonio Colombo is legit. So he has like a verified interest and he is like, he's able to buy the actual piece of work. So Salvatore Alla uh, presents Colombo to Kisarang and the sale is complete. Keys was asked for a really big project by Elio Fiorucci, the fashion designer, but Keys was not really feeling it, so Andy Warhol actually convinced him and he came back to Milan for a two days and two night crazy extravaganza of painting an entire furniture shop, like the entirety of a furniture shop. Hmm. Um, and it's in that occasion that Antonio Colombo and Keith Herring met and talk about art and bicycles. Since Cinelli was developing the famous Rampicino at the time, so Cinelli's first mountain bike, Herring expressed the desire to have one. And Antonio Colombo was like, yeah, sure, dude, I'll, I'll send you one. So he sent the first Italian mountain bike to New York as soon as it was ready. And in exchange, the artist would paint the bike and take pictures of it for him. It's like, Keith Haring was actually an influencer. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, the two became his really friend. And later, Antonio Colombo, so he had like one of those three lasers. And he was like, yeah, I'll, I'll send one to you. Uh, he's probably only going to use two. Because there is one for training, one for the actual hour record, and there is one if one of both fail, right? So like, yeah, it's probably not going to use the third one. So I'll send it to you and you can customize it for me. And on the internet, pretty much everywhere, you can see detailed shot of that laser. It is beautiful and goofy at the same time. And yeah, I think it doesn't even have value. Uh, there is so much to talk about Cinelli, like innovation, crazy parts, frames. But in terms of history, I think uh, that's already a lot of dates and name for you to, <laughs> to remember that we talked today. Yeah, you have to take a shot while listening to every name that ends with an O. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, Cinelli, if you're listening to this, uh, please come on the show and yeah, we'll discuss. <laughs> yeah, we only, we only say good things about you guys and we love you guys so much. No criticism. <laughs> no criticism. Uh, but yeah, tell us if you guys want a second episode. Uh, we, we could do that. But yeah, Fabian, what do you think of like the general Sinelli history? I mean, it's nice to see where it came from. Like, If you compare it nowadays to newer bike companies, they don't have like this, you know, from, from nothing to something Disney story. Like, yeah. like 14 year old kid working in a doctor's office and he has to quit school and then he gets money for a bike from a guy he runs into with his bike. You know, like that doesn't exist. If, like, if you look at how Canyon started, for example, or Specialized, I'm 100% sure it's nothing, nothing is like this. It's probably like, I have my idea, I get investors, you know, like, you know, like modern shit like that. And this has like yeah. a, like a romantic kind of atmosphere around it. You know, it's like traditional, it's like cultural etc so it's it's very very nice to see how it was how the company was born how it was developed over the years the influences and the people involved and all these things because i think that's all often lost when thinking about bikes and bike companies yeah like you said it's kind of a disney story after like those research research i understood better like the approach of Cinelli's on lot of their bikes and the fact that they are so colorful compared to whatever is in the market and yeah i really want a laser now <laughs> yeah yeah i think it's it's on my list of i will probably never own this you know yeah. but 
yeah they, those are beautiful bikes and man there's so many variants uh, like yeah like we told before there's the one without a, a down tube no a top tube no yeah there's the one without a c tube and the one with the rear suspension and there's the new carbon one there's the one from 2012 the nostra and yeah, I think it would be cool if we have Amy Danger again on the show and she talk us more about the lasers. Yeah. She probably has some extensive knowledge that we don't. <laughs> <laughs> for all we know, we, she wrote the articles that we use for this episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, guys. Well, this is pretty much it for today. Uh, it was a compact episode and I hope you liked it. Uh, it might be a little bit shorter than the other ones, but... Yeah, we decided to have a an episode that was packed full with infos and we don't make history episodes often because they require I would say ten times the amount of work of a normal episode. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was it was a cool one and it was really interesting for us to learn more about that company that is so deeply into the fixed gear culture. As usual, everything we discussed today will be on the show notes on the blog slowspinsidey.com. You can find us on our Discord server. The invite link is also in the show notes or with our Instagram account at slowspinsidey. Sharing the podcast with your friends is the easiest way to support the show by giving us a good review on the platform if you chose. If you get value out of the show, why not considering putting value back in either by supporting us on Apple Podcasts with a new subscription program or by visiting patreon.com slash podcast to join the community where pledging at the end of the available country access to the pre and after show, which is around 40 minutes of extra content per week. You can even become an integrant part of the show since our highest tier now gives you the power to choose the topic we should discuss in the extended version. We are now at 25 Patreons. It's one up from last week. As always, thank you so much for your support. The music for the show is Lovely Swindler by Amaria and the illustration, well, it's by me because I started making the illustration now. <laughs> well, everyone, uh, that was a packed episode. I hope you liked it. Uh, Fabian, one last thing you want to say, maybe? Yes. If you really enjoyed this episode, let us know because it, like, Paul did all the research for this episode and it's a bunch of work. I, I was looking at the edit history of the dog and he was up late doing this stuff. So let us know for <laughs> sure. Because it's also nice to, to, to talk about it. Yeah, 100%. All right, guys, we are going to go on to the after show. And for everyone else, we'll see you next Monday. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.